Remain standing. Our reading from God's holy word this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and beginning at verse 60, and extending to the end of the chapter. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me, unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. We have been in John chapter 6 for quite a long time. I think this may be my eighth sermon from the chapter. We are reaching the end of a a very significant season in our Lord's life. We have just had the feeding of the 5,000, which all of the Gospels uh, highlight as one of the most significant miracles that our Lord did. Uh, But John has given us what happens in the next day or two, and uh, it's not as positive as you might have expected. You have had people who were fed at that miraculous event. They will be fed again. They have come to him and asked for food. Christ has said no. And he has been talking to them about eating his body, eating his blood. Uh, This has become a central talking point that they have been going back and forth with our Lord about. And they clearly are not understanding what our Lord is saying. When you hear Christ refer to this, he is talking about that teaching. And we are coming to the end of this discussion, and it doesn't end positively. You have verse 666, where uh, from that time on, many of his disciples no longer walk with him. And the, the Greek is emphatic. It, it emphasizes that they're not just a little upset and they go away for a while. They go away. You know, this is the breaking point. We're done. We're out of here. What can we draw from this The last of John chapter 6. 
Well, the first thing that we need to emphasize, and I have emphasized it a couple of times, I realize, but by God's providence, I have an almost totally different congregation today, so uh, I'm going to go over it. Um, the, the most striking thing about what we're looking at is this text calls these people whom Christ says they don't believe. Did you catch how many times both the apostle in his, in his storytelling and in Christ speaking directly said, these are people who don't believe, and Christ knows you don't believe. Well, the most striking thing about this text is about four times it calls them disciples. Now, if, if, if you are a reformed Christian, what I'm about to share will not be that striking. But for the majority of Christians on earth, that is very striking. Because we are used to the idea that disciple and believer are synonymous terms. That if somebody is called a disciple, they have to be a believer. And if you have people like this, they have to be, quote, false disciples. We use that language. And in fact, just three or four days ago, I was talking to a, a brother of the Lord, a good solid Baptist guy. Um, he could not get by calling these people false disciples. The only problem with that is in the sacred text in front of us, Nowhere does John or Christ call them false disciples. It calls them disciples. They are disciples. What they aren't are believers. Now, the fact that they are disciples means that up to this point in their life, they have, at least for a season, dedicated themselves to following our Lord, learning from his teaching, being present where he is present, a disciple is not just a student. A disciple is not just my college students who come for a couple hours and learn from me at EKU. A disciple is someone who has dedicated themselves to following a teacher around, supporting him, learning from him exclusively, building their life around him. These people have been doing that. Jesus calls them disciples, John calls them disciples, but they are not believers. What you are seeing is what Reformed Christians talk about when we use the language of a visible and an invisible church. If you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're going to find this language in chapter 25 of that confession. There we say that the, the kingdom of God on earth, the church, the visible church, is really kind of made up of two different groups of people. There are people who are officially in the church. They are active as part of the church. They will have their names on the roll, or they will be very active. They may even be deacons. They may be elders. They may even be the pastor they are inside the visible church of Jesus Christ, and by that we mean 
everything you can see, touch, hear, and smell, the building, the organization, the roles, the ministries, they're in it. But not everybody who is, in fact, in that kind of relationship to Christ outwardly is in a believing relationship to him inwardly. When we look across an assembly, we see the gathered body of people who are part of First Christian Church or what have you. We see whether they are active. We see if they are involved in the life of the church or they're just on the peripheral or something like that. But no mortal eye can look at the heart of a person. Now, there are, there are tells. We are told in Scripture that belief gives way to loving works, and the Bible defines what loving works are. And so there are subjective tells that will say, okay, this person's probably a believer. But no mortal eye can look into the heart of somebody and say, okay, that's a believer. There is an immortal eye that can see that, though. Looking down upon the gathered body is the eye of God. And there is nothing hid from the eye of God. God knows who believes and who doesn't. God is fully aware of who doesn't believe. But you and I cannot be. And that is why we're kind of shocked when somebody who has been involved with the Lord at length, like these people have been. They are disciples. They have been actively involved with the Lord. And now they walk away and they don't come back, says John. That's, that's shocking to the outside observer. And you even hear our Lord as he turns to the disciples and says, now do you guys want to leave too? That's the humanity of our Lord speaking. It, it's a pained voice. The Lord Christ in his humanity is pained by this. But only God really knows who's who. And oftentimes it is when something very pressurized comes to bear that you actually find out who's who. When everything is running very smoothly, like a well-oiled machine, everybody involved in the body of the church is pretty happy to be there because nothing's pushing them. But when there is some sort of very pressurized situation going on, that's when you find out really who this person is. And this is why the Apostle John can write in John chapter 2 uh, these words. Chapter 2, verse 18 to 21. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So you've got language here where John has just said, okay, there are people who are little Antichrists. That seems kind of significant. Uh, the term means totally opposed to the work of Christ. Uh, there's a bunch of them running around. Who are they? They went out from us. So they were actually part of the church. They were involved in the body of the church. They were disciples. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were in us, 
They were actively a part of us, but internally, they never were us. They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So the situation has come where the Lord providentially is making a a shaking of his church, and these people have gone out, but they were in. And just to, to hammer that closer, if you go to chapter 3 of First John and go to verse 10, you read this. If I can turn my pages. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I was talking about those tells that you can see. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now think about that language for a second. This is the child of the devil. And you have children of God. But now we can separate them, even though they are in the same place, because the children of the devil don't love their brothers, which is a reference to the children of God. How does that work? How does a child of the devil not love his brother if it's a child of God? Two different families, right? Well, there is a brotherhood that is happening outwardly. It is a brotherhood in the church. They are involved in the covenantal discipleship community. But the children of the devil ultimately reveal themselves for who they are because they don't love their brothers. And there is a brotherhood, but it is not a brotherhood at the level of belief. And uh, truth will out. Ultimately, the children of the devil are seen, and ultimately the children of God are seen, because in the church, there is both types of people. This is true in the Old Testament. If you read through the Hebrew Bible, the prophets are constantly referring to You are an Israelite in the flesh. You've had circumcision, but you really need to circumcise your heart. Uh, The same thing covers over in the New Testament. You have people who are outwardly baptized, but not really baptized. There's not an inward baptism, not belief, but they are part of the church, at least for a time. They fall away, and we watch these people fall away. And it is very significant at what they fall away. They fall away at a teaching delivered by our Lord. You cannot swing a dead cat today without hitting somebody in the church who will tell you doctrine divides Doctrine causes people to be uncomfortable. Doctrine is divisive. We need to lay doctrine down, and we need to be more like Jesus. Well, we have just watched Jesus talk to a group of people and say, 
you need to drink my blood and eat my body. If you don't drink my blood and eat my body, you have no life in you. I am what separates you from heaven and hell, and you need to consume my flesh. And it's not some wild-eyed fundamentalist. It's our Lord Christ talking very doctrinally. I mean, isn't eating the body and drinking the blood pretty doctrinal? I mean, that's, that's heavy theology. And our Lord has taught this to this, these groups of disciples, and they have stumbled at a biblical teaching from the mouth of our Lord himself. Uh, you can't accuse Christ of not being Christ-like. That just doesn't work. And our Lord is being clear, but it needs to be pointed out that our Lord, if he had chosen, could have gone on much more at length and maybe logically could have cleared up their misconceptions. We have had a, had a whole series through this chapter. We've looked at what it means to eat the body and drink the blood. It's synonymous with having faith in our Lord Christ. We, we dine upon his death. We dine upon his sacrifice. When we lay hold of him in faith, that is here in the text. But it is something that you discover when you meditate on the text, when you... When you listen to our Lord and you, you spend time uh, taking in what he's teaching, it's not something that is spelled out for you in a manual. It's something that you as a disciple really have to grasp and wrestle with until it becomes reality for you. Christ could have totally spelled this out, but our Lord doesn't. I mean, he does, but he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Which means our Lord allowed a group of disciples to get upset about a teaching, and our Lord from heaven, for whom nothing is impossible, allowed them to walk away. So if the Lord Christ allows men to say, look, you know, this doctrine, I'm not willing to take it. I'm going to walk. If the Lord Christ does that, then looking at the ministers of our churches and saying to them, Reverend Smith, you are just too hard. You know, if if you had taught the Bible just a little bit weaker, uh, the Jones family would still be in our midst. But, you know, you you just taught them the truth and they walked out. Well, how dare you? You are condemning Jesus Christ, who has done that, right before our eyes. Our Lord allows doctrine to drive out of the church people who do not believe. He himself does it. And that should end all debate over this kind of thing. Jesus says something pretty profound about doctrine in verse 62. In 62, Christ says, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Oftentimes when we read this, we kind of jump that over. 
Uh, Christ says, are you offended? And we assume, okay, he's, he's taking on the issue of their being offended. But then he goes on to a very supernatural possibility. He says to them, okay, you're offended at this teaching. What would happen if you saw me ascend before you into heaven? What would happen if that took place? Why is Christ saying that? Well, he is showing a relationship between true biblical doctrine and belief, which apprehends this doctrine, and spiritual experience. Jesus is saying, if you watched me ascend into heaven, gravity lets go of my body and I float into the air and a cloud hides me from your sight and it is clearly, clearly a supernatural event that you could not deny, you would have no clue what is happening, and it would be no benefit to you. Have you ever heard, you know, I'm not doctrinal, but I'm spiritual. I mean, I don't really believe in an objective truth, but I, I, I experience the spiritual realm. Anybody heard this, like, yesterday? I mean, it's the, it's the spirit of the age. Uh, when, when people do surveys, Americans swear they're very spiritual and they believe in spiritual experience, but they don't believe in doctrine. Well, our Lord has just said, if you don't know the truth of the doctrine, if you don't know what is really real, you could watch a man ascend into heaven and you would have no clue what was going on. Um, we've been here before, but in the history of the visible church, in the history of God's visible people, the generation that saw numerically the most spiritual manifestations was the generation that came out of Egypt and then wandered in the desert for 40 years. Just if you count the number of miracles, it's not the generation that sees our Lord it's actually the generation of Moses. They, they see more miracles. But they are described in Scripture as spiritually obstinate and dead. They are told they can't go into the promised land. they got to wander around for 40 years until they all die off except for two of them, and their children can come in. But they have received water from a rock. They have received manna from heaven. They have seen the plagues on Egypt. They have experienced angels directly. They have had a pillar of flame and a pillar of fire leading them through the desert. Uh, they have seen all those things. And they don't have faith, and they don't really understand the doctrine of God. And they end up being the generation that the writer of Hebrews says, these are the people you don't want to be. So Jesus looks at them and says, if you saw a great miracle, if you saw something so spiritual you could not deny it, without having proper doctrine, it would do you no good. In fact, he will say, my words are spirit and they are life, talking about what he's been teaching. He ties the spirit to the word, and in so doing is saying, if you don't, have belief which lets you apprehend the doctrine 
Even the very spirit does you no good. There is a Holy Spirit in the world. It is the third person of the Trinity. It is all-powerful. It is a person of the Godhead. And if you don't have belief, and if you don't apprehend Christ's doctrine, the Holy Spirit itself does you no good. Neither the teaching nor the Spirit, you are separated from God, and you are dead. There's life all around you. There's the Word of God. There's the Holy Spirit around you, but you are dead. And also note how Christ ties the Spirit to the Word. Another very prominent teaching in Christianity is to take Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he talks about uh, the, the letter of the law and the spirit and to make a distinction saying, well, uh, you know, the actual wording of God's revelation doesn't matter, really. I mean, you don't want to be picky about words or anything like that. Um, you can be really nebulous about what the Bible teaches, but the Holy Spirit is the deal. We follow the Spirit. The Spirit permeates us. Okay, fine, the Spirit leads us to do things. It looks like the Bible says you really ought not do, but that's okay because, you know, we're not into the letter of the law. We're into the Spirit. Well, here our Lord says, my words are life, and they are Spirit. So when you connect with the written word of God, which comes from the spirit of God, you are connecting with the spirit of God. You are having an experience of the Holy Spirit. It is not the only way that you can have an experience of the Holy Spirit, but it is the spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not in any way at odds with the written word of God. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to play God against God. And all they're trying to do is sow confusion. Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life. That is verse 63. The, the saved and the lost are according to verse 64, the first part of it, quote, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. That's fairly clear, right? I mean, John hasn't spoken in any sort of nebulous terms. He tells us, these people don't believe, and that's the issue. We've been looking at belief all the way through this discourse. Jesus knew who wouldn't believe, and, and that ties into verse 66 when they walk away. He knows that's going to happen. Uh, what, do you, what do you do with that? Well, if you are an Arminian, what you do with that is you say, we believe as firmly as any Calvinist in the concept of foreknowledge. And they're not lying. They, they do. They believe that God has all knowledge about all things, and that includes who will believe and who won't. But God doesn't, you know, influence anybody. He just knows. Well, let's 
let's look at that for a second, okay? Let's, let's also take into account a number of other things that a true Arminian, I'm not talking about somebody who believes in uh, progressive theology in the sense that they have the idea that God really doesn't know everything and he's kind of developing with us. I'm talking about a true Arminian, and we're going to give them their due. A true Arminian not only believes that God is all-knowing, a true Arminian also believes that God is all-powerful. They really, really do. You know, you get a Wesleyan, ask them if God's all-powerful, they truly believe that. They believe that God is all-loving. So do we. God is totally all-loving. There is nothing evil about him at all. And he is all-knowing, as we've already looked at. Uh, and he's the creator. He is the creator of ever-living being, not just starting the world, like a deist would say, but every time a child is knit together in the womb, God is the primary cause of that. He is the primary cause of who that person is, their gifts, their graces, their abilities. God knits them together in their mother's womb, right? And Arminian would agree to everything I'm saying. So... Let's run some questions by that. God knows everything about everyone, including whether they'll believe or not. And he makes them exactly the way they're going to turn out. Their personality, their likes, their dislikes. We're not talking about sin. Sin is, is destruction. But we're talking about the gifts and graces, their intellect and their abilities, that sort of thing. God makes them knowing what's going to happen to them. And from the Arminian point of view, people either embrace our Lord Christ or reject him based upon their perception of truth. It is an act of the free will that a person embraces Christ or not. So to embrace Christ, you have to have something going on in you that isn't going on in your neighbor because he doesn't get it. So God makes you the way you are and makes your neighbor the way he is, knowing that if he had made your neighbor like you, he would embrace Christ. But he makes your neighbor in such a way that he does not embrace Christ. He's all loving, too. His, his, he's totally good. He's totally loving. He creates people from the beginning, knowing what they're going to do, and knowing they'd be different if he created them differently. But it's totally of man's free will, and God has nothing to do with this. Does that work for you mentally? Anyone who rejects Christ could have re accepted Christ in the Arminian way of thinking if they had had a better wisdom or a better intellect or if they had been morally better. But God created them as they were, knowing what they would do and knowing that they would not receive him, he creates them that way anyway, but it is totally in the hand of man whether they will receive Christ or not. In, in 33 years of ministry, I've never had anyone really say, okay, fine, that works really for me. It totally works. Because it doesn't. Our Lord Christ is all-knowing, and he is the creator. He has created people from the beginning, knowing whether they're going to heaven or to hell. He knows whether they will believe or not. Uh, in fact, not only does he know it, and, and I'm not meaning to say this flippantly, I've got it written down on my paper this way, 
But, you know, if I were an Arminian, I didn't know who was speaking. When I heard our Lord Christ say, uh, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. I'd say that guy's a dirty, rotten Calvinist. Our Lord says, how is it that anyone can believe? Because we've already seen throughout this chapter, coming to the Lord and believing in the Lord are synonymous terms. It's two ways saying the same thing. Uh, how can anybody believe? Well, it has to be granted by the Father. And these people don't believe. Jesus knows they don't believe. They're not going to believe. When we get to verse 66, they're going to walk away forever because they don't believe. And Jesus says, if the Father had granted it to you to come to me, you would have come to me, but the Father did not grant it to you. This is our Lord Christ. This is not Charles Spurgeon. This is not Augustine. And even this is not Paul. Because I have had a number of Arminians look at me and say, well, you know, uh, we follow Christ and Paul, he's a great guy. He wrote the Bible, sure, but he's under Jesus. Paul brought up all this predestination stuff. But, you know, Jesus, he didn't emphasize predestination. You can't come to me unless the Father grants it. That's our Lord Christ. And it's also the Apostle John. In this very gospel, when we get to chapter 12, which will be about three years from now at the rate we're moving through it, but when we get to chapter 12, we're going to read this passage, verse 35 through 41. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So now if you're an Arminian, you say, look, Jesus said to believe. He's giving them an outward call. Surely, uh, you know, they can decide or not whether they're going to believe. Well, what comes next is this. But although he had done so many signs before them, what would happen if you saw me ascend to where I had been before? But although he has done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he, now who's he? He is God himself. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, in this case referring to Jesus. So the concept of divine predestination is all over Scripture. It is Paul. It is John. It is Isaiah. It's Jesus, our Lord. And you should be very happy about that. Because if you have faith in Christ, it has been granted by the Father for you to come to him. It's not been based on you being a great person 
Because you're not. I'm not. I am fully, fully aware I am a wretched sinner. You know, some ministers will say that from the pulpit, and they're just kind of covering themselves. Let me assure you, I'm aware I'm a wretched sinner. My my failings are very visible to me. But the Lord Christ has saved me. It has been granted to me by the Father to come to him, and I am absolutely dependent on that, and I am glad I am. If I were to have any hand in staying saved, I wouldn't. I assure you, I would not. But the Father has granted that I believe. The Father has granted that I speak the way the apostles speak as things come to an end. You see, uh, 68 to 72 is the way faith speaks. The way unbelief speaks is it says this is a hard teaching, who can bear it, and they walk away. But the way faith speaks is... Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe, notice the term, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I can say that. If you belong to Christ, you can say that. Why can you say that? It is because God has allowed you. It is because in his grace and his mercy, for his purposes, he has brought you into the kingdom He has made you say, where else can I go? It is to the feet of Christ I have to come. You have been brought there not because you are better than your neighbor in any way. It is the grace of God, and he who has brought you will keep you. Thanks be to God. By the way, one final point I would like to point out is that uh, verse 65 is Christ speaking very, very much like a Calvinist. And verse 66 is, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. I think the placement is very significant. Faith embraces the grace of God, and nothing is more sweet to it. But a number of Calvinists can be very frustrated when they preach God is sovereign and he's sovereign in grace, and the flesh gets really mad about that. Well, that's what the flesh does. Jesus Christ is preaching the sovereignty of God, and the very next verse is, they walk away, they're done. And again, Christ could have prevented that. He is almighty God. He has taught in such a way that it can only be apprehended by faith. He allows them to walk away, being offended at what we would call Calvinism. That's what the flesh does. The doctrines of God, all of them, offend the flesh, but there is no doctrine that offends the flesh any more than the sovereignty of God. I have a, I have a dear friend. He, in fact, was even a mentor. Um, he is an Arminian minister. I remember years ago we were having lunch, and he was, he was a Bible college professor at that point. I was a student. And he looked at me and said, you know, Russ, um, you're pretty excited about being reformed. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to go out into the pulpit, and you're going to preach to people that God is gracious. 
that they are sinners and there is nothing they can do to come to God unless God draws them. And you're going to think that people want to hear that. You're going to think that people will receive that as good news. They're not going to. You are going to offend them. You are going to tell them that there is nothing in any human being that can reach up and be good enough for God, and they are going to be mad, and you're going to be surprised. You know, when it happened, I wasn't surprised. It was kind of because he told me. Because that's actually what happens. Unless the Spirit is involved, unless the Spirit is drawing someone, the flesh will kick up at divine sovereignty like nothing else. And it happened to our Lord. It will happen to you. You are not better than our Lord. And if our Lord taught it openly, we have no right to not teach it openly. Now, I agree with the concept that you find in the 39 Articles that says you should teach it in a winsome way and such. But we are called to teach it because our Lord did. And he's our Lord. 